This is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhal. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper 2022. 2022. We January have, 9th. We have an action-packed broadcast Yeah, today. we made it through your birthday. Yeah, we did. But we have so many things going on for the first week of January. It's unbelievable. Nothing's so, going on. So we better, we <laughs> better get on. to it. I think the headline is, we went to the theater this week. We, we, we did, again, go back to New York City. We went to New York City. And it was a very interesting uh, trip. Yes. It was, uh, we went on a Tuesday night. We went to see Caroline or Change. And uh, it was one of those deals where there was no one in New York City. And there was no one on the New Jersey Turnpike. So we flew in. in, in We we, we flew in. We flew. It was amazing. It was amazing. We got in. I got to say, we left uh, from our house in New Jersey. And when we moved out to New Jersey... About 37 years ago, yeah, it took us an hour to get into the city. And now, once again... It was like 55 minutes. Yeah, 55 I mean, minutes. Lately, for the, for the past 20 years, it's been taking at least two hours because had, of the Lincoln Tunnel. We had reserved a spot in a lot, which was probably unnecessary. We were the only car in the lot. No, there was another car. There was okay. one other car. One other car. And then we went to, to uh, a quick dinner at La Bonne Soup, where we were... Uh, not the only people there, but maybe there was one other table taken or two other tables taken. But we walked by many restaurants. Empty. We, we could have eaten in any restaurant. Many in very New York. nice restaurants. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although I'm against going to nice restaurants on the theater evening. But on a, yeah, on the theater evening. Even so, why waste it? I don't. You know. My point though is yeah. that nice restaurants are still going begging. They're, uh, they're at least that Tuesday. Well, it night. makes you worried. Yeah, it makes uh, you worried. I'm quite for ner- nervous, yeah. but um, in terms of. I know people worry about risk yeah. at this point uh, because of the Omicron. Yeah. Uh, but we were, we were not within six feet of anybody. Because yeah, no one's in New York City. Until we got to the theater and, and at the mask. theater, they checked for our vaccination. Oh, yes. They checked very carefully for the vaccination status of everyone in there and you wore a mask. And what do you think of the show? I thought it was great. Yeah. It was so that was the show. We talked about it last week uh, by Tony Kushner and Janine Tesori. Right. And uh, it music was amazing. Yeah, and it was more in my mind more of an opera than a music a conventional musical. Right, this is very little dialogue. Right, right. perhaps almost no dialogue. But it's atmospheric music. It's like you can't if if pressed, I couldn't give you a single melody right now. Right, because you but you get involved in it, and the music takes you along, and it sort of raises the you know, emotional stakes in a way the dialogue can, and it carries you along in a way that sometimes dialogue becomes unnecessary. The story is is almost autobiographical in some ways for Tony Kushner, in that the main character, well, the main character, the youngster in the in the in the play, he's a young Jewish boy growing up in New Orleans, in 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 Lake Charles, Lake Louisiana. Charles, sorry. Louisiana. Yeah, right, That's right. exactly where yeah. Tony Kushner, but he's as out of place as you can possibly be. And he's navigating whatever familiar issues you have in a standard Jewish upbringing in a strange place like Louisiana near New Orleans, uh, having lost his mother in particular. And then there's the maid who sort of uh, sort of takes a prominent place in his world. And of course, she has her own world. And the uh, the maid is played by Sharon Clark, who everyone says, and it's true, is magnificent in the part. And she's British? Yes. <laughs> That's so amazing because she's singing, you know, and speaking in uh, just dialect. Uh, yeah, yeah, in, in, in yeah, in uh, American well, and, New Orleans, whatever you want to call it, doesn't seem British at all. No, and uh, blues, gospel, right. etc. It's a very creative production. 
Uh, we could go on. Uh, that said, it closed- much of the action takes place in the basement where Caroline is doing the laundry. Right. And I know it sounds bizarre. Oh, it is bizarre. But the um, laundry the washing appliances, machine, the appliances are played by people. Sing along, right? And a, the radio, and it's just uh, it's it's not it's not bizarre. It's kind of fabulous. Yes, but it's not silly. It's not stupid. Well, you're it, caught up in it. Yeah, it's a theatrical conceit, but yeah. it works. So you have a woman playing the washing machine. She's quite theatrical. You have a man playing the dryer. Uh, who's, you know, an impressive presence because the dryer is so hot. And then you have these three, uh, what they used to call, you know, a girl singing group uh, playing the radio. And uh, they they are uh, the They're radio. They're all fabulous. Now, I have to say, it's, it's not a comedy. No. It's completely serious, it and has... it grapples with very serious concepts and, 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 and yes. questions, uh, race and... Um, Death and you know relationships and religion. Yeah. Um, but uh, oh yeah, it's very complex. I will say for a musical very play. I mean, look, we. You know, I think I I object when people say, "Boy, this is so creative uh, to get into." Now we're having musicals that are dealing with real things, whereas before they didn't. A lot of musicals have dealt with a lot of real things and very challenging things. So I don't think that's a new idea. That said, this. Usually, the underlying the play underlying a musical is not terribly complex. All right, so uh, Anna and the King and Siam, uh, you know the musical there. It's got three episodes. It's a sketch, you know, schematic. You can diagram it. It's just not that complicated. As simple as can be. This is a complex play that underlies this musical with a lot of characters who are either you know uh, good guys or bad guys. Uh, they're all just trying their best. There's really no evil, and yet there's a lot of challenges, uh, and nothing is laid out. And, you know, we were discussing it afterwards. You can have all kinds of different interpretations of this, notwithstanding that they're real people. It's not science fiction. So it was very, it was fascinating. It's definitely worth seeing. Um, Caroline or change. change. Uh, now, that didn't stop us from uh, <laughs> continuing in the culture binge, where now all the movies are on your television set, or many of them are, and you can get them, miss the best part, without reaching into your pocket. So that's fabulous, right? Well, we've already reached into our pocket. Well, we're paying a subscription to Amazon, but we might as well exploit it, or Netflix or whatever. So we saw Being the Ricardos, which is the movie about uh, Lucille Ball and uh, Ricky Ricardo, uh, written written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Lucy and Desi Arnaz. Lucy and Desi Arnaz. Yeah, you're right. Ricardo, I get that confused. <laughs> uh, that's right. Lucy and Desi Arnaz. Uh, and uh, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, starring Nicole Kidman as Lucy and Javier Bardem as Ricky. So what do you think? Oh, I should say as Desi. As Desi. Sorry. And Ricky. Yeah, and Ricky. Yeah, and well, Ricky. I, I mean, it was fine. It was fine. I know you, you liked it more than I did. Um, but uh, it it was okay. Look, I, I'm easy compared to you. You're a tough it, critic, but um, no, I, my I'm not, I'm not from... a tough critic. So, so the the gist of it is that you know Lucille Ball is this great comedian, and this is kind of showing another side to her—the great businesswoman, the great you know, not that she's just uh, a um, you know slapstick physical right. comedian, but she's really crafting. 
the comedy, thinking hard about it uh, and uh, choreographing every minute of her show in a serious way and dealing with other serious right. issues, relationships. and It's a behind-the-scenes uh, look at the show, and there's some other crisis money, that comes uh, yeah. up, has to do with uh, political uh, So, uh, you know, I didn't think that was such a revelation. Yeah. Um, so maybe there was... I was Some of the shock value was lost on me. I yeah. don't know. Well, look. Here, but, but the dirty secret is um, we're not big Lucille Ball fans, either of us. Right. right. Maybe that's what brought us together. <laughs> Um, I've been counting it. I, and we both watched a lot of reruns growing up. Well, let me get this up. out because yeah. not everybody is, you know, 49 years old like we are. You know, the deal is that, uh, for those who don't know, Lucille, uh, Lucille Ball's show, um, I, love, know, I Lucy. love Lucy, ran for, I don't know, five, six, seven years, whatever it was. But it was a tremendous success, number one show on television. They tell you in the movie it had 60 million viewers in some episodes. Which is, you know, five times, six times what you get in cable shows today that are considered highly successful. That said, there was nothing else to watch. So, uh, you know, <laughs> you could uh, look at that many different ways. Uh, yeah, I, I look, I th- what did I think? Just random thoughts. Uh, I did like it. I thought it was fun. Um, I thought, uh, notwithstanding what some people said, I thought she, Nicole Kidman, was fine as Lucy. Uh, you know... I think she's hard to take in an interview, but she's a, she's an excellent actress. That's all I can say. Uh, I think I thought Javier Bardem was great as Desi, and he does a lot of singing uh, and uh, playing the drums a little bit. And he, I thought he was charismatic in the same way that Desi Arnaz was charismatic, legitimately. Uh, and I thought the supporting cast was great. I think the the movie was paced well. I think the you know it's snappy dialogue. It's sort of like you know Lucy and well, did, on, you say, on the West did, you, Wing. did you tell the people yeah, that it was Aaron written Sorkin. and directed by Alan Sorkin? I did. Okay. Uh, so it was like Lucy and Desi in the West Wing. That's what it was. And they were like back and forth, boom, boom, boom. And that was the humor in the show. Um, when you look at a lot of reviews, reviews are all over the lot. And uh, what people like to say, because I think it's just easy to say, is that Aaron Sorkin is a great writer and a bad director. Um, I don't know. I, I can't pull that apart. I don't really know. But he is a great writer. I think a lot of other people who were negative, uh, most people were pretty positive on the cast, actually. A lot of people who were negative said it doesn't do justice to Lucy because she was a comic genius and you don't see it. And they try to show her as a comic genius and it does fail. And this goes back to the point you made before. This is a little secret for those of you who weren't watching the Lucy show years ago. She wasn't a comic genius. The show wasn't that funny. It was terribly unsophisticated, slapstick humor, you know, it was what it was. It was a period piece. All credit to her for having a great success at that time and place. But you can't look at it now and say, you know, it's Shakespeare. It just, it just wasn't that. So I thought that was uh, an impossible hill to climb. So well, you know, I, 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 I think it might have suffered from uh, um, the idea that I guess at one point it was it might, was going to be a miniseries yes, or something. Right, right. And so there were plots that were being developed and then they were dropped uh, i mean yeah. it, it uh so, so uh, it perhaps there was some back and forth right. and in and out that um kind of deteriorated the flow yeah i would something. listen i would watch it that's uh, you I, you're less positive than i am i think it's fun and the music's good and having a is a lot of fun and frankly uh you know nicole kimmons is kind of you know it is a, an engaging character as lucy even though she's not funny for even five seconds so well, really hard to show how how why people are funny, but um, 
it also had in it as Ethel, uh, my favorite Nina Nick. Arianda. That's right. Uh, who's a terrific actress that we've seen on stage. And uh, who's the guy? Uh, you're the putting Fred me on guy? the spot. Yeah, there's a guy you see in all kinds of stuff now. Uh, I'll, I'll come back and get his name. Uh, I'm sorry about you, that. You broke the rule. No, I was. <laughs> I, I thought uh, you. Would no, no, his I wasn't. Name. Uh, no, I'll get his name and I'll say uh, I'm an idiot. He's, he's the uh, guy in the farmers insurance. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's all over the place. Uh, he, he's not going to suffer from the lack of exposure because of us. Well, all right. Um, yeah, J- know- J- J.K. Simmons. J.K. J.K. Simmons. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, you know, a lot of it's really good. I again, I would watch it. Uh, you a little less so. And then um, we uh, dip into another film, uh, again, flashing our subscription. And uh, we saw Don't Look Up, although uh, maybe didn't watch every minute of it. And I should say, directed uh, and written by Adam McKay, with starring Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Jennifer Lawrence. And some other big names sprinkled in, like uh, Meryl Streep uh, and the like. It's sort of that kind of star study. Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, who's in every movie, as far yes, as I'm concerned. Yes. Why wasn't he in the Ricardo's movie? There must, he must have been on the he cutting He might have been floor. in there somewhere. He could have been. Uh, he actually wasn't bad in this movie. I often think he is bad, but he wasn't bad in this. Um, and uh, I'm not so going to ask what you thought of that, because I don't think you were ever drawn into that movie too much. But no. again, I, I sort of liked it, but uh, the deal is quickly, and a lot of people, I think, are aware of this film. Uh, it's, it's a story about uh, a comet that is identified by a young scientist played by Jen Lawrence that's going to crash into Earth six months hence and what happens then in terms of trying to get the leadership of the country to respond in a productive way. And it becomes a satire because the leadership, uh, political well, leadership about is how a failure, the government business leadership reacts, is a failure. Yeah. And it's, it's becomes a satire in the way different people factionalize and po- things are politicized. This all should sound familiar to you. What's interesting is uh, a couple of things. Um, First of all, I should tell you that even though the, um, well, let me say Well, it this didn't first. end like the um, what? Uh, the article you read last week. Which was? Or the week before. Which was, remember a few years ago, somebody said, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, asteroid's yeah, yeah. going to It turns out it was missing. No, no, yeah, no, no. It's just the opposite. It, it, this, well, don't tell people how I don't want to give away the No, no but spoilers I say, here. Here's something. In the, uh, in the Times today, in an op-ed piece, there was an article called "We Need a Second Cut of Don't Look Up," and by Ross Dutat, who's quite a serious writer mm-hmm. in the Sunday Review section, and he often writes things with a little bit of religious bent because that's the theme he likes to talk about. He's also politically conservative, but his point is this, and he's a very good writer. But his point is that he kind of likes the movie, which, by the way, is very popular. Strangely, it because even politically popular uh, by all signs. I don't know why. Doesn't have a high uh, because it makes everybody look bad. It, I think that's the reason. Yeah, the Rotten Tomato wasn't that high, but apparently the viewership is very high. Okay, uh, uh-huh. and he said, you know, the only thing wrong with the movie is, it's it's really was put together as sort of a uh, subtle, not even subtle commentary on a response to climate change. People denying it, people politicizing, etc. Said, so, but the fact is, the movie works much better as a comment of the response to COVID, mm-hmm. which they didn't have in mind when they made the film. Yeah, and so he actually does a rewrite of the movie, an outline, in order to have it even more tailored 
uh-huh. to COVID. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to go into that because no one made that movie. But uh, he said that would have been even better. So and there's, who, there's something to that. Wh- who, what was this article again? It, it says, we need a second cut of Don't Look Up by, by... Ross Dutat. I think said it. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the funny about what's, what's popular or not, you know, a lot of reading also about some movies getting viewership, making money and so on. And you read a lot about West Side Story being a real box office flunk yeah. failure. And I looked into that. And... It is. And I, I don't know what causes people to go to one movie or the other. I can't say. But I actually looked that up a little bit to try to compare it with a film in uh, 1961. Yeah. And uh, film in 1961, I mean, they've grossed $30 million on, which is a failure now because I spent so much right. to make it. Uh, the 1961 movie was the number one movie of the year in terms of box office. Mm-hmm. And it made over $400 million. No, 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 I'm sorry. It made $44 million. But in today's dollars, it is over $400 million. Mm-hmm. So it was, in some ways, by some measure, mm-hmm. 10 times as popular, just in terms of box office. Mm-hmm. But more to the point, uh, try to keep this as apple to apple as possible, was the number one film of the year. Here you do have films grossing. The best example, of course, being Spider-Man, which is grossing $600 million. Yeah. This is not the number one film of the year. So, I don't know. I can't explain these things. I'm just an observer. Okay. Um, Speaking yeah. of uh, movies, I was looking at the New York Times, yeah. and uh, you know there are a few little ads for movie theaters, yeah. and there was an ad for the Film Forum, and it was showing "I Know Where I'm Going," yeah, which is one of my favorite movies, yeah, and uh, that we accidentally saw probably fifty years ago. Did we see not quite a, fifty years ago? We must we, have seen it in a movie theater. No, we did not see it in the movie. It's a nineteen forty-seven movie. Yeah. You know, we weren't even. We saw bored. it on TCM. Okay. No, we didn't see it at TCM. We were visiting uh, my father's cousin Martha on the yeah. Susquehanna River, yeah. and it was a rainy day, um, and uh, Martha was baking bread in her coal stove, yeah. and we were in the big room watching TV. You know how there are movies on TV even back then, yeah, you know, okay. like the afternoon matinee, whatever, and uh, this came on. Probably really? a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. And this came on, and we watched it. Well, that's funny. And we, and we were amazed yeah. because it was so good. And yeah. it was, you know, so let's say this was in uh, 1977 or something. And um, so it was already 30 years old, that movie. Yeah, well, that's um, interesting. I mean, first of all, I think the movie's black and white. Yes. So it probably was perfect on her TV set because it might have been a black little and white TV, TV set. set in the corner. Uh, and it is a great film. I don't know if we mentioned it. it's uh, Emmerich Pressburger and Michael Powell. But it, it, Michael Powell made a lot of great movies. Yeah. And we can go into that at great length. But it is a classic film about a woman played by Wendy Hiller who's finding her way in the world. Um, and of course, I knew of Wendy Hiller, but as a much older person. Oh, you don't remember? You didn't know? You didn't associate her with Pygmalion? You know, I I don't know. I, I it wasn't like I was a, a great connoisseur of okay. film right. when I was. All right. so uh, she was the original twenty years old. Pygmalion, nay, uh, right, was, right, my fair lady. Yeah, right. Um, she's a but, great actress. So that anyway, it was a revelation. It was a great, great film, and uh, yeah, and right. we enjoyed it. And at the end, we're watching the credits, and the little girl in the movie turned out to be Petula Clark. Right. Who, when we were in high school, was super popular right. as a singer, right. um, a go-go singer um, in in um, 
uh, from England. So I well, mean, she had was, a great career in the UK in particular. Yeah, it was hard. It was funny to imagine her as a you know um, latter day Shirley Temple. Well, you know, it, we, there was a time when I think we might even have bought the tape because we wanted it or no, 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 remember, no, no, but no. it's always been hard to get. I, I will say every this, once in a while we happen upon it, yeah. and it's still good. I think. I think yeah. well, no one hold me this. I think if you have Amazon, you can get it right now, just on Amazon. I, let's just just look it up. Yeah, I know. I know it's definitely on Criterion. Yeah. Well, I a, know where I'm going. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to tell discuss no, the plot. No, it doesn't matter what the plot is. It's just remembers a delightful plot. movie. Yeah. You know, not silly, not stupid, not rom com. Yeah. Just a good. But it's a very. It's different from movie. anything else you've ever seen. Right. Right. All right, Chris Grant. Chris Grant. Uh, well, this is really uh, kind of an obituary. Uh, Christine Grant uh, passed away um, December 31st at the age of 85. And uh, she's described, uh, if, uh, the Times doesn't give her, I don't think the Times gives her an obituary, but in the sports section gave her an appraisal. The North Star of Women's Equality spent a lifetime fighting for fair play. So it's just kind of interesting to read about her. She uh, was born in Scotland and uh, she lived through World War II um, and uh, uh, became uh, involved in uh, field hockey in Canada somehow. She came to the United States to get uh, to study sports administration so she got a um, phd in sports administration in iowa in 1968 um, and uh, she ends up uh, being uh, involved in uh, the uh, you know their uh, administration um, and eventually she will become their i guess not until 1973 in 1973 she becomes the athletic director of women's sports at Iowa at a salary of $14,000. But in any case, she was, uh, she, her moment of truth, she said, was in 1969 when uh, they were about to, at Iowa, build a new field house. And it was going to be paid for um, by fees charged to male and female students. The funny thing is, in the field house, 1969, not 1929, 1969, Fieldhouse, no women's bathrooms, no women's locker rooms. Women were not to be allowed in the Fieldhouse. It was for boys only, and yet the women had to help pay for it. She said, I, that's when I became a feminist. And uh, she spent her uh, career uh, really, uh, you know, working to uh, create, you know, some help women catch up in the sports world. And she was involved in uh, Title IX. She was, uh, you know, what do you call it, interviewed by Congress, and she was involved in consulting once Title IX was passed. Um, she was consult- She consulted on kind of fleshing it out and making the guidelines, et cetera, and so forth. And, you know, Title IX is, you know, one of the things that uh, it tries to um, uh, create, encourage, demand uh, equality in education and in sports uh, for women uh, and men. And so she uh, she had a um, her, her whole career at Iowa. As I said, she um, became the director of women's athletics. 
earning $14,000 a year in 1973. Um, and uh, she held that job into, until uh, 2000, the year 2000. And um, during her tenure, I guess, uh, at least um, they, her, the school, the women, I guess, won 27 Big Ten Conference Championships. And twelve NCAA. Okay. I, well, I, I don't know, know what that number means. Anyway, anyway, I will tell you. She this. sounds like a heck of a yeah, gal. Yeah, no, I have nothing. Yeah, that, I agree with you. I mean, actually, Iowa, I, I think, was a, a hotbed of women's basketball historically. Although you'll recall, the women's game used to be different than the men's game. Right. But uh, there is some history to the women's sports in Iowa. There's there's a reason that it's Iowa. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, okay. And she, you know. She, according to the Athletic, yeah, uh, the online sports magazine, <laughs> okay, uh, she grew the women's sports budget at Iowa from three thousand dollars to nearly seven million. Mm-hmm. She liked to do stunts. Yeah. Okay, in the eighties, she wanted to break the NCAA record for attendance at a women's basketball game. Yeah. And uh, she, you know, f- uh, got uh, everybody fired up to come to a February 3rd game in 1985. And uh, they jammed 22,000 spectators into an arena, which had a capacity designed for 15,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, was, she actually had to go on the radio yeah. uh, before, I guess, as the game was starting and tell people, turn your cars around. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no more room mm-hmm. in the stadium. After, after the event, she actually got a citation from uh, the, uh, I guess, the authorities for violating the fire code. Yeah. She framed that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, she um, she apparently she was quite uh, spellbinding uh, when she uh, talked to people. Her Scottish brogue won a lot of people over. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, thank you, Christine. I mean, uh, you know, part of what uh, she probably helped uh, me be able to uh, play ice hockey at Princeton. That's probably true. Yeah, or, her. or even say he played water polo. But uh, we did not have any twenty-two thousand spectators. Well, that's, that. that's as you say, it's sort of a stunt. But uh, yeah, Christine uh, Grant. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the Times and the in the, the article in Times mentioning the Athletic because it turns out the Times is buying the Athletic, and as you described the Athletic, it is an online sports magazine, and it's actually supposed to be pretty good. I don't get it because it costs money to subscribe. But uh, they're famous for having articles written by players themselves, like mm-hmm. Eric Jeter writing about how he feels about retirement or stuff like you know, that. No, I think Granger has mentioned it to yeah, us. The Athletic yeah, Athletic is, is a cool magazine, which is why it doesn't make any sense that the Times is uh, buying it. I mean, the Times has uh, no sports section that's recognizable as uh, related to sports. So they have no interest in sports, quite honestly. It's like uh LeBernardin uh, buying Shake Shack or something like that. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. But uh, I'm sure financially it makes sense for the Times. And the Times has sort of uh, assured everybody that they will not assert any uh, any editorial control at well, all. So yeah, leave well, it I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense because I'm sure it, uh, you know, just as um, Shake Shack would... Uh, um, encourage or encompass a whole different demographic for yeah. the Bernadette. Yeah. Um, this, uh, 
you know, this online yeah. uh, source will be a would be a great right. well, yeah, it would be a great source of people who aren't reading the New York Times uh, because they're not interested in the kind of subjects the Times covers or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, all right. So maybe probably, it does make probably it. a savvy move, and uh, hopefully they won't interfere. Yeah, let's hope so. Okay, so um, reading the uh, arts and leisure section, big article about a series that's been going on in the New York Times for a few years called Five Minutes. Five minutes that will make you love classical music, choral music, Baroque music, Mozart, the cello, etc. They they put they ask a, a variety of uh, people, all kinds of writers, artists, uh, you know, experts. Um, you know, if uh, basically, what would you tell somebody to listen to if you were just going to tell them? You know, pick if you were just going to pick one um, artist uh, from a particular topic or instrument, and uh, then they put together a playlist based on these different people and their picks. If I really wanted to convince people to love uh, mezzo sopranos, I would have them listen to, you know, Grace Bunbury, uh, Marian Anderson. Um, it's Marilyn Horn, blah blah blah, and so actually, it's uh, it's pretty good. Okay. And um, I was uh, I've been listening to some. Uh, you can go just Google uh, five minutes uh, that will make you love New York Times, something like that. You can get it's worth reading the Times articles. So each uh, contributor, whether it's John Williams, Yo Yo Ma. Um, Renee Fleming, uh, Wynton Marsalis, whoever is, you know, being consulted and choosing uh, the clip. Uh, it has something interesting to say. Patty Lapone comments on Maria Callas. Uh, so it's worth reading those little blurbs. But you can also get it on Spotify. You just search for five minutes New York Times, you know, really? will make you love Baroque, the cello, whatever. And you get the full playlist on Spotify and you can listen to it. Oh. Uh, so it's a um, great way to dip into some of these things. I, you know, I keep thinking, you know, uh, Mark and Javier, our friends and neighbors went to uh, hear, went to see um, the magic flute right. uh, at the Met. And they were saying what, you know, it was a great production. It was really fun. It's really wonderful. Uh, we have other friends going to opera constantly. You know, I, I keep thinking, you know, I need to, Learn more about opera, listen more to opera. So you know that would be a, I will say a good I, jumping off. I haven't point. heard Marilyn Horn's name for a long time. So uh, let me know. Let me know if you listen to it. What, what you run into? Maybe I'll do it. Yeah, you you run into some interesting uh, choices from mm-hmm. interesting people. You know, okay. and what? Well, Patty Lapone, you know, master class. That's what. Uh, right. She had to listen to this <laughs> right, stuff. Right. But you're listening. Uh, you know, I was listening to the mezzo sopranos, and you have various contemporary singers and what they listen to, you know, in their youth uh, and what even, you know, turned them towards mm. operatic singing um, mm. when they were just teenagers and, and so on. So it's, uh, it's uh, okay. I think, very accessible. All right. So there was an article uh, entitled Jewish Roots of Star Trek are Explored by Exhibition. 
Well, let's just ding, 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 ding. Museum update. Museum update. And the but up- what is the big excitement? Well, first Dan of all, is giving the museum that's update. That's right. So Dan the, has spotted an exhibition. At Skirball. To go see. Skirball, which is in L.A., a Jewish cultural center known mostly for its explorations of Jewish life and history. And they have an exhibition about the connections between Jewish religion and culture on the one hand and Star Trek on the other. And the, uh, the principal point, uh, the lead point being that, for example, Leonard Nimoy uh, would give the famous uh, Vulcan live long and prosper greeting by splaying his fingers. That's the way the Times describes it. Yeah. Which turns out to be a gesture. Uh, yes, Tams is doing it. It's hard to do. Turns out to be a gesture that uh, Leonard Nimoy, who played Spock, supplied because he witnessed it uh, as part of a Hebrew blessing at an Orthodox Jewish synagogue in Boston when he was a boy. Uh, so that's uh, a connection. Now, now the connection in terms of person uh, is Leonard Nimoy, who turns out was not only a Jew, but an observant Jew. And maybe there are a couple of subtle points uh, of connection along the way, which aren't really brought out in this article. The other person who they mention in this connection is uh, William Shatner, who it turns out is Jewish. Um, I had no idea. Yeah, neither did I. And beyond that, I don't see any connection at all between Star Trek and uh, Jewish religion and culture, at least none identified well, in the Well, I article. think you have to go to the exhibition. Maybe you do. There are probably storylines that are based on well, the Jewish... Uh, they, they, they sort of try to get that way in the I article. know that some of the planets look a lot like, you know, the... Planets Maybe in the you have desert and mm-hmm. so on. Yeah. So uh, the article sort of tries to go in that direction and comes up with nothing and ends up talking about, it veers into a discussion about how uh, museums uh, and cultural centers, centers like Skirball try to come up with sort of populist exhibits to bring people into the museums. And in fact, this has been very successful in that connection. So maybe well, that's all that's good going on here. For them. Yes. So the, but an interesting point came yes, about as yes. we were researching this. This is an amazing point. This is an amazing point, and that is there is a connection between Lucille Ball and Star Trek. Star Trek. Yes. And that is that it was Desilu Productions that created Star Trek, okay, and sold it to NBC. NBC um, you know, didn't really like the pilot, and so they... Uh, this is according to uh, information on the um, Skirball website. Uh, they didn't really like the pilot, and they wanted they had um, I don't know more um, I don't know involved idea yeah. of how things would work, and that was going to be more expensive. And the uh, I guess creative board at uh, um, Desilu yeah. kind of rejected it. No, it's too expensive. We can't do it. But apparently, Lucille yeah. held strong. And uh, because of her, and saying, yeah, we are going to do this, um, Star Trek uh, came about. Well, so, so the, the answer is, even though there's not enough evidence, perhaps, that she was a comic genius, she was a science fiction genius. Genius. Yes. All right. <laughs> I, I Kudos. I think she was a television, how did that not get, a television genius. How did that not get into the movie? I, I don't understand <laughs> it. They didn't do the kind of research. Well, I don't think... The movie was set in a particular time frame, and I don't think uh, Star Trek was being... uh, We'll give them a pass on that. All right. pass. All right. So, well, as as long as we're talking about museums, if anybody feels like going to the Met, 
a nice uh, exhibition there called um, The African Origin of Civilization. And so it, it turns out the Met is uh, actually renovating their um, Arts of Africa galleries, and then, which will not reopen until 2024. And uh, but meanwhile, they're having an ongoing exhibition that will that is basically juxtaposing uh, sort of traditional Western uh, art, old art uh, mostly, um, with African art, and uh, some of the similarities and comparisons are are amazing and informative, um, and uh, you know, putting different, you know, male figures, male power figures uh, uh, next to each other mm-hmm. and uh, with their different attributes and uh, r- really kind of make you think and make you appreciate. Uh, a lot of the uh, objects are quite uh, beautiful and uh, kind of wakes you up to uh, the kind of narrow-mindedness of uh, traditional museums and so it's you know it's kind of an exciting chance to uh, think more about art there's in fact one of them one uh, egyptian work of art that they use to compare to an african work of art that uh, i especially love and i think it's uh, um very it's very fun to uh kind of think about this juxtaposition juxtaposition of Memi and Sabu from um, like uh, this third century BC uh, with uh, a um, couple, um, a seated couple from Mali in the 19th century from uh, Africa. So that um, looks like a fun exhibition. Ongoing means I think that it's going to change and continue and they're going to cycle in various uh, African and European works of art. Okay. All right, so um, you can. I know we're kind of running a little bit long here, and let me get through this as best I can. You have to bear with me a little bit. There's a film that has the, the title um, Three Minutes in Poland," and here's how it. Well, com- this sounds interesting. It is interesting. Let me see if I can organize it. Here's how it comes about. Uh, a fellow named Glenn Kurtz finds a, a film in the corner of his parents' closet in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, in 2009 in a dented aluminum canister. It turns out that among the things in the film is footage, uh, three minutes of footage, of what's described as a vibrant Jewish community in a Polish town. As he described it here, old men in yarmulkes, skinny boys in caps, girls with long braids, etc. It turns out that the film, it's like a home movie, although it is in color, is, was made in 1938, uh, the town in, was a Polish town called Nasiosk, uh, that has it was near Warsaw, and it had three thousand Jews. And 1938, of course, was just before the beginning of the uh, Nazi invasion of Poland. And of the three thousand Jews, uh, as a result of that, only a hundred would survive. Um, so um, what happened was that this fellow, Kurtz, who was fascinated by this, uh, ended up researching as best he could everything he could find about Nashilsk, uh and about the people that could possibly be identified in the three minutes of footage. 
Uh, and apparently he was able to make a fair bit of progress on this and even research about the town itself. And uh, he wrote a book that was published in 2014 called Three Minutes in Poland, Discovering a, Discovering a Lost World. Uh, and the uh, book was, uh, was seen by a woman named Bianca uh, Stigter, a Dutch filmmaker, who happens to be married to Steve McQueen, uh, the British fellow who was the director of 12 Years a Slave. Uh, and they decided, or she decided, perhaps with the support of her husband, to make this into a film. And it is now a 70, 70, 70 minute feature film narrated by Helena Bonham Carter, which has been picked up uh, various uh, places, including most recently at the Sundance Film Festival. Um, what's interesting about this, uh, other than the subject matter, is that it's not uh, a bunch of talking heads. It's not uh, looking at what the town looks like today. It's all within this three minutes of film, which sounds almost impossible. But according to the Times, they say it, the film never steps out of the footage. It tracks, zooms in, stops, rewinds, homes in on the cobblestones of the square, on the types of caps worn by the boys, on the buttons of jackets and shirts. She creates still portraits of each of the 150 faces, no matter how vague or blurry, and puts names on quite a few of them. Um, and apparently, uh, this is quite effective, as they say in the article, by identifying people and details of the life of this community, they managed to restore humanity and individuality. One of the viewers says, you're watching the film and you feel like screaming out to the people, run, get out of there, get out of there before 1939. And of course you can't. Uh, in any event, we haven't seen this yet. I'm sure in a few months we'll have the chance. But So that's that three minutes in Poland? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, it's a little dark, but it's interesting. Um, must be exciting to find something like that. Well, apparently the film, uh, the existence of the film has been known for a while. It's at a Holocaust museum, and people do check it out. It's been yeah. viewed many times, just the three minutes. Okay. And it's the building on it that seems to be unexpected mm -hmm. and quite creative. All right, so just a, a little quick uh, thing here. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, Gabrielle Hamilton... The chef of Prune uh, wrote her last uh, final column for the New York Times Sunday Magazine. She And uh, I've raved before about uh, she's a very good writer. She's not just a good cook. She's uh, just a wonderful, evocative writer. It's like writer. Tom Coughlin, not just a good football coach, but an excellent right. writer. She, she, she writes beautifully about yeah. food and life and, and uh, everything. So, um, I, so I was sad to see uh, her um, articles will not continue, but uh, happy to see that uh, the reason is because she's uh, working on reopening her restaurant, Prune. Boy, that's and, such a, it's such a challenge. It's such a challenge to take that on. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, you know, it just uh, is getting harder, I yeah. think, every minute. Um, so, but anyway, this caused a flood of letters into the New York Times, 
saying that very same thing. Yeah. Many people say, uh, so sorry, love those articles, so sorry that uh, they will be ending, um, but uh, looking forward to possibly coming to uh, Prune someday. And, and also people describing their, um, you know, how much they loved Prune. And uh, one uh, person says, I fervently hope to return to Prune for delicious food and that feeling of finding food that tastes like appreciation and a zest for life. That's a wonderful description. Anyway, so... Um, that's, that's in New York, right? That's in New York, but these are people from writing from all over the country yeah. saying, uh, you know, well, I got to go there. Good luck. And, good uh, luck, because uh, I who agree. knows? And you know what they, they keep mentioning as... Uh, they mention, you know, I made this recipe, that recipe, but what keeps coming up again and again is her cheese crackers or cheese shortbread. Really? Yeah. No, I, we okay. should make that. I, we'll I'm, go. If she manages to get it open, we'll go. I mean, it's still... Prune by Gabrielle Hamilton. Well, you know, maybe we can go. That's one of those things, you know. We'll see. Who can get in? Yeah. Not us. Let's, let's see if she can open it first, okay? I mean, the, only, the only chance we can get in is if we go on a Tuesday yeah. in the first week of right. January. If no one is going to New York. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. So, Sidney Poitier died. Obviously, a great star, a uh, great actor. Um, but, what, you know, and we don't have to go into that because it's been a lot written and said about it. But I had no idea how poor his upbringing was. Did you? I did not know much about his upbringing at all. So he grows up in the Bahamas. He's born in 1927. Youngest of nine children, wore clothes made from flour sacks, never saw a car, looked in a mirror, or tasted ice cream until the family moved to Nassau uh, when he was 10 years old. How's that? Mm -hmm. When he was 12... He quit school, became a water boy for a crew of pick-and-shovel laborers. Uh, a year later, he, f- he fled Miami for New York, ar- arriving with $3 and change in his pocket, took jobs, washing dishes, working as a ditch digger, waterfront laborer, and delivery man in the garment district. Life was grim during a race riot in Harlem. He was shot in the leg. He saved his nickels so that on cold nights he could sleep and pay toilets. Uh... He uh, goes enlists in the army. He decides he doesn't like the army. Feigning a mental disorder, he gets a discharge, and he's back in New York City. He goes to audition uh, at a, a the um, I guess it was the American Negro Theater, um, and his audition was a flop. With only a few years of schooling, he read haltingly in a heavy West Indian accent. And Frederick O'Neill, the founder of the theater, told him to go back to be a dishwasher. Well, he, they say they laughed at yeah. his accent. Right. And uh, he uh, he goes back uh, to dishwashing, and he bought a radio and practiced speaking English as he heard it from a variety of staff announcers, and a kindly fellow worker helped him with his weeding. I mean, this is unbelievable because there is no one with better articulation right. than Sidney Poitier. It's just yes. unbelievable. And then he goes back to the the Negro Theater uh, organization and he gets a part when uh, Harry Belafonte doesn't show up for a rehearsal and it goes on from there. I mean, it's just unbelievable, that story. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, just amazing. Um, 
All right. And so the last thing I have is just odd and funny. And you never see this. There's been a lot written about uh, Carl Bernstein's latest book, which is his second or third memoir. It's called Chasing History, A Kid in the Newsroom. Of course, Carl Bernstein, famous reporter uh, for the Washington Post. And this, this book reflects on his getting into the business as a young man. He started the Washington Star and whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, so there's a review in the New York Times by Dwight Garner, who does a lot of reviews of books for them. Um, and who, by the way, uh, lives in Frenchtown. Oh, really? Yeah, he does. Uh, and I'm just going to read one paragraph of this review. I've never seen anything like this in a book review or any review in the New York Times or anywhere else. And here's the paragraph describing the book. The result of the book is a fond, earnest, sepia-toned book, The Color of Old Clippings. It's pretty good. I mean, it's okay. It's better than a sharp stick in the eye. It's just <laughs> long and pokey and a bit underthought. I might not have finished it if my paycheck didn't depend on leaving a clean plate. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Whoa. All right. So kudos. Kudos. Uh, what can I say? It's, uh, you know, white corner. All right. Frenchtown. All right. So not that's as it. bad as a stick in the eye. Yeah, not as bad. Well, uh, Wouldn't have right. finished it unless he was paid to do so. Here's hoping this podcast wasn't as bad no, it's as a stick in the eye. Worth the money. Uh, yeah, so that's it. We're winding it up. A jam-packed week. And uh, looking forward to another one. We'll see you next week. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Apuha. The Tamsin and Dan read the paper. Adios.